the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he, de he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Different preachers have different philosophies on how much they self-disclose, how much personal experience and narrative they share, but to one degree or another, I think you can trace a good amount of our life over time through our sermons. And so, I feel I owe you a heads up that you are likely in for an increasing number of illustrations involving Disney scenes. <laughs> We're not really doing very much screen time with Georgie yet, but wide-eyed and curious about the world around her. She's already learned to scroll by watching her millennial parents. And if she's having a come apart, especially during a diaper change, we may just put YouTube a Disney song or two. 
We're not going to talk about Bruno, but I did see the whole Encanto movie recently. It's highly recommended. It's about a magical family who are the pillars of their village in the mountains of Colombia. But really, at the heart, it's just about a big family. It's composed of gifted people, it's full of love, as well as complicated relationships, insecurity about the future and their place in the larger community, and even a scapegoat member blamed when bad things happen. But we don't talk about it. The strong-willed matriarch was the one who led her family to safety after a violent insurrection many years before. And as the movie unfolds and she continues to try to lead and guide her family with a firm hand, things begin to go awry. And the protective magic that has kept their family and their village safe seems to be slipping away, seemingly connected to her granddaughter, the young protagonist of the film, who is both so like and so unlike her abuela. But there's not really an antagonist like some of the classical Disney movies, no nefarious villain lurking in the sidelines. There's only a family's anxieties and good intentions. Not so unlike, perhaps, the temptations Jesus is faced with in our gospel passage today. They aren't invitations into nefarious deeds and notorious sins, but are far more subtle, it seems to me. Jesus has been baptized and then was led into the desert by the Spirit. Luke doesn't call his abstaining from food fasting, like Matthew does, but all three of the synoptic gospels agree that he was tempted by the, desert, by the devil in a state of hunger and weakness. Now, if you are ever aware of that you're being tempted by the devil, probably just default to not taking any of his offers. You heard it here first. <laughs> but the first temptation, what's so wrong with eating when you're hungry? Nothing. But temptation is always context specific. The devil is tempting Jesus to flip his understanding of what it means to be the son of God from faithful obedience to turning his power to serving his own bodily desires when Jesus has chosen to forego them for a time that he might prayerfully focus on God's call to him in this enveloping ministry. He wasn't minimizing the need for food, but allowing that it is not his sole purpose. Next, the devil offers to give over the kingdoms of the world to Jesus if he simply worships the devil. I don't know, it seems a little obvious, but in Luke's worldview, the fallen powers have come to control this world. Not that everything is evil, but that they hold the world in their captivity. And it's from those powers exactly that Jesus has come to liberate the world. Now, it may seem obvious, but the temptation, as with the bread, is the shortcut. Wouldn't it save a lot of pain and suffering? Wouldn't it be a quicker fix if Jesus was just in charge right at that moment to be able to begin to set everything right? The devil, however, is not God's equal. And Jesus treading over his identity 
as a humble son of God to become a friend of the devil is not worth the expediency. Finally, Jesus is invited to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, and the devil even quotes scripture at him to make his case, showcasing that anybody can try to proof text by throwing an isolated Bible verse at you. This is, again, though, actually quite subtle. The devil is making the suggestion that Jesus can prove, can show his dependence upon God, as only God's intervention by sending angels would then save his life. Even if that worked, though, it would only showcase a different sort of Messiah, the invincible wonder worker that many of those that Jesus will encounter hope that he is, come to sweep away the oppressive Roman rule and reinstitute the rule of the Jewish temple in Israel. The devil's pitfall here is that he too, like so many of Jesus's contemporaries, so many of us today, is unable to see what God is doing in and through Jesus, failing to recognize an even deeper mystery, known already to Luke and his believing community, that divine rescue may actually come through suffering and death, and not only before and from them. In each case, Jesus turns to Scripture, and not a verse plucked from its own necessary context, but verses that are broad and recurrent truths about relationship with God. Jesus sticks with what he knows, that God is faithful, and that he does not need to do other than respond with his own faithfulness. This faith sends the devil off, overcome, but not yet defeated, and Luke, ever the stage manager and storyteller, lets us know that the devil will be back before the story is done. Preacher Fred Craddock writes, it is important to keep in mind that a real temptation beckons us to do that about which much good can be said. A real temptation beckons us to do that about which much good can be said. And I think, I think this is a helpful point to reflect upon as we set forth into our Lenten season, during which the church invites us to give special attention to that evergreen invitation to consider our relationship to God our discipleship after Jesus, and how reprioritizing those things might reorient our relationship to the world around us. It leads to interesting ethical quandaries. There's, I remember that ethical question I first learned from the play and uh, musical Les Miserables many years ago. Is it morally acceptable to steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving family? Certainly, we're called to take care of our families, and I think most of us would sympathize with Jean Valjean. But what if and when does that come, begin to come more deeply into conflict with the good of the community, the needs of the individual, the needs of the few versus the needs of the whole? And how do need and want come together and relate to whatever our Christian understanding of neighborly and social responsibility are? And what is enough? in any conceivable category. For many of us, most of our temptations won't be a bargain with the devil or the sort of thing that instantaneously puts our souls in drastic danger. Do we keep our peace if we don't have anything nice to say? 
Or do we let fly with a truly clever bit of snark? What if we're telling the truth? If we get that bonus or that economic impact payment, do we treat ourselves or do we decide to give away a little more to deep need? Do I conveniently miss that call from a needy friend? Or do I take a deep breath and let go of whatever I was about to do and pick up? A lot of these things, especially when it comes to how we choose to use the resources that have been given to us, including our time and energy, are not right or wrong, are not even temptations depending on the context and what may at time be necessary boundaries, right? What might be a choice of competing goods doesn't mean one is ethical and the other isn't, but in some contexts it could. There are plenty of times where we don't need to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but there may be times where we have the opportunity to choose between the good and the holy. In the everyday choices of how we live in this world, how to interact with others, how to use the gifts that we've been given, I have found it easy to fall into habits and patterns, especially if one choice is lower effort, which, given human nature, tends towards putting the self first. And habits can become set ways, and if a greater temptation does arise, it can be harder to resist those patterns of self-justification or even see the graver choice for what it is, especially if I'm hungry or hangry or anxious or stressed like Jesus was. And that's, I think, where the wisdom of Lenten practices comes in, which may be abstaining from one thing or another or taking on a renewed effort at prayer or spiritual work, not, as I saw someone put it, performing the suffering Olympics to prove our devotion, but opportunities to disrupt our assumptions and habits and to reflect on how we're moving through this life and through this world. Is God our polar north? There's certainly nothing wrong with treating yourself on occasion, I will be the first to tell you, but is that always my first priority? Do I default towards stability and security at the cost of relationships with those around me? How am I acting as a disciple of Christ today? And is that reflected in my words only or also my actions? This Lent, I invite you to disrupt a pattern or an assumption that you haven't thought about in a while. Maybe by taking something away, maybe by adding in something else, if you need ideas, your clergy, of course, are always happy to check in and think through it with you. And if you want, actually, on second thought, we'll even talk about Bruno.